This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good evening. Good evening to you, or good morning, or good day, if you happen to be listening over the Internet. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community-sponsored, listener-supported radio, your imagination station, KOPN. 
And I'm glad you're with me tonight. As I said, my name is Mike Hagen, and this show is called Radio Orbit. This is the third week that we've been on the air on Monday nights. For those unfamiliar, the show is about the unknown, the mysterious, the outlandish, the remarkable. We look at science and technology, spirit, mysticism, the preposterous, and uh, many other things. This is Radio Orbit, and uh, all we're doing is sneaking up to the edge of the abyss and uh, taking a look inside to see what we can find. So that's what we do here. We do it for three hours every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. And tonight, no different. I have sort of a special show planned for tonight. And uh, actually, five years ago yesterday was uh, the death of a gentleman whose name was Terrence McKenna. And uh, Terrence was a friend and a guru and an inspiration and a remarkable man. And uh, tonight we're going to do sort of a tribute to Terrence McKenna on this one day after the five-year anniversary of his death. And uh, he is greatly missed. And um, he will not be missed in vain, at least not tonight. So stick around. Uh, if you're familiar with Terrence McKenna, this will be a wonderful blast from the past for you. And if you're unfamiliar with Terrence, then I urge you, to stick around and uh, listen in. I'm going to start the, the first presentation at about 11.30, only about 25 minutes from now. I'm going to sort of uh, hyphenate the first part of the program here. And uh, it's going to be cool. Trust me. So stick around, listen to it. A little tribute to Terrence McKenna going on tonight on Radio Orbit, okay? I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to do in just a minute. But first, uh, let me take care of some business here. All right, uh, thanks for the emails. Hello to everybody listening over the web. I appreciate it, as, as always. Thanks for the information. Thanks for the great stuff that you guys send me. Uh, a lot of the stuff that, uh, that I talk about on the air here is stuff that has been brought to my attention by listeners out there somewhere, not necessarily here in the Columbia and mid-Missouri area, although local and regional listeners are more than welcome to uh, email me with anything that they have on their minds, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, if you have information you'd like to share, if you have questions, concerns, um, advice, <laughs> anything you'd like to share with me, I'd be glad to read it and, um, and respond to you. So you can do that always at Orbit Radio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O at AOL.com. That's Orbit Radio at AOL.com. And uh, the phone number here in the studio is area code 573-874-5676. That's 874-K-O-P-N. And if you're outside of the 573 area code, you can reach me here at 1-800-895-KOPN, 895-5676. And uh, once we get this stuff rolling, give me a buzz. Feel free to give me a call and check in. Let me know what you think. All right? Okay, also, uh, one last thing, all of these programs and uh, lots of other information are archived up on the Internet. You can always go there and check things out at www.radioorbit.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com, just one O in the middle. The uh, 
radio and orbit sort of share the O there in the middle of that web address. So keep that in mind. I think if you put in radio orbit and use two O's, you get some... Uh, some guy that wants to sell you a domain name or something. But I already own a domain name, and it only has one O. All right, so that's uh, www.radioorbit.com with just one O in the middle there. And you can go there at any time and see what's happening uh, on the upcoming program, or you can go back into the archives and check out the links uh, to information uh, that was covered on those previous programs. And you can also listen to all of the past programs with Windows Media Player or Real Player or pretty much any sort of web-based uh, audio player. Okay, so uh, that's that. Let's. Uh, we're going to do sort of a sort of a quick space weather tonight. Let me let me do a quick update of some uh, some upcoming guests, and I'll do a quick space weather. And there's not a whole lot going on, but a couple of kind of cool things. And then we're just going to get right into it. Uh, and I'll tell you what we're going to do first. Uh, there is a um, uh, a particular presentation with Terence McKenna uh, discussing lots of different things with uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake and Dr. Ralph Abraham. And I'll tell you a little bit more about those two guys in just a minute here, but that's coming up. It's called Metamorphosis or Metamorphosis. And uh, it comes also under the title of Trialogues at the Edge of the West. So that's coming up, Metamorphosis. Trialogues at the Edge of the West with Terrence McKenna, Dr. Ralph Abraham, and Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. All right. Uh, in the meantime, next week, Richard K. Moore, one of the few politically uh, leaning shows that I'm going to do, and it's really leaning. Uh, that's going to be an interesting show for me. Quite a departure, what we're going to do next week. But uh, Richard K. Moore is a social commentator and an historian. He lives in Dublin, Ireland. And he'll be talking to us live from Ireland next Monday. And uh, that'll be at midnight. Uh, we'll do the first hour, do some, uh, uh, we'll do some background and set things up a little bit for, uh, for RKM, who's going to be showing up at midnight. But at any rate, uh, uh, for people who are interested in the political and sort of the geopolitical side of things, uh, Richard K. Moore has an interesting if feather ruffling perspective so uh, that'll be an interesting show I think and like I said something that's not really typical for uh, for Radio Orbit but I look forward to it so Richard K. Moore next Monday and uh, the following week we've got Dr. Terry Grossman uh, Dr. Grossman is the co-author uh, of the book Fantastic Voyage Live Long Enough to Live Forever he wrote that book with Ray Kurzweil and uh, for you uh, out there who are unfamiliar with uh, the history of technology and forward-thinking, innovative people. Ray Kurzweil is one of these guys, and uh, he's gotten together with Terry Grossman, who will be on the program again live uh, two weeks from tonight, and we'll be talking about their book, Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough uh, to Live Forever. Basically, uh, these guys are predicting that immortality is within our grasp uh, within a much shorter period of time than people are talking about typically. Uh, they're basically saying that it's not going to take too much longer, maybe a decade or two, and uh, as long as we can uh, stick around that long, that science, medical technology, etc., will be able to solve any, any of those medical issues, including aging. 
Now, of course, the caveat is we have to keep the planet intact between now and then. And uh, that's going to be a challenge in and of itself. And interestingly enough, that's uh, probably some of what Richard K. Moore and I will be talking about next week, about how we're going to keep this planet together with the madmen that are running it right now. So at any rate, those are a couple of programs coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have uh, Stephen Buhner, probably a week or two after that. He's written a number of books, but one of my favorites is called The Lost Language of Plants, another book called The Secret Teachings of Plants. And uh, uh, Stephen and I talked about both of those books in an interview that I did with him just a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago, and I'll be airing that interview in just a few weeks so you can hear that as well. Stephen Buhner, an incredible uh, researcher, writer, mystic, ethnobotanist, and uh, when it comes to the natural world and understanding the plant life on this planet, he's one of the guys that I would put toward the top of the heap for sure. And uh, I really appreciate talking with Stephen, and that's going to be a great program. And you guys that are interested in intelligence and nature and shamanism and uh, uh, indigenous knowledge, you'll be uh, really pleased uh, to hear that interview with, with Stephen Buhner. We've got John Lash coming up. He's the associate of Joanna Harcourt Smith, who, of course, is the former wife of, former wife of Timothy Leary, who I spoke with in such a strange, synchronistic synchronistic. Uh, uh, situation a couple of weeks ago. Uh, hopefully, uh, John will be on the program for sure, probably in May sometime, uh, and hopefully uh, Joanna will be on the program in the future as well. And uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, of course, uh, who is uh, one of the uh, one of the three participants in the presentation that's coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, Rupert and I have been talking over email for quite a long time. Uh, we haven't pinned down a date, and I'm not uh, holding his feet to the fire by any means uh, because he's an incredibly busy guy, and my program probably isn't at the top of his priority list. In a, at any rate, uh, he did uh, agree to do at least a short segment with me at some point in the future, and uh, I look forward to that with great, uh, with great anticipation. And... Hopefully, uh, once we do this, uh, I may even send uh, Rupert a copy of this show, <laughs> just for uh, just for good measure. So, at any rate, lots of good stuff coming up, and I've got a few other people uh, lined up in the wings here that I won't even mention. But plenty of stuff to cover, plenty of things to fill the program for months and months and months. So, I hope you all uh, will stick around tonight, and I hope you listen to some of the programs coming up in the future, okay? All right, so tonight what we're going to do, uh, as I said earlier, um, I'm celebrating tonight the fifth anniversary of the departure from this planet of a man whose name was Terrence McKenna, and uh, Terrence was born in the mountains of Colorado and uh, went out to California and uh, changed California and, in my opinion, changed the world, the things that he said are still resonating throughout culture and throughout this planet. And tonight we're going to make them resonate a little bit right here in the middle of Missouri. And the first piece uh, that we're going to present tonight is called Metamorphosis. And it's a, a trialogue, a three-way conversation between Terrence and Dr. Ralph Abraham and Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Now, Ralph Abraham is uh, a professor of mathematics, has been a, profe a professor of mathematics at the University of California uh, at Santa Cruz since like 1969, 68 maybe. Uh, he 
got a Ph.D. in mathematics long time ago back at Michigan in the early 1960s. He taught at Berkeley, taught at Columbia, he taught at Princeton. Uh, he was a professor at Berkeley when he was 23 years old, uh, but taught also at Columbia, Princeton, uh, and then finally at Santa Cruz now for almost uh, 30 years. But um, he's been all around the world. The guy's held positions in Amsterdam, Paris, Barcelona, uh, Basel, Florence. He's been all around. He's an author. He's written lots of different books. A couple um, with the help of Terrence. One with the help of uh, Rupert in particular that I remember. Uh, he is uh, very active to this day. You can check him out at ralphabraham.org. And uh, he's right now still on the cutting edge the frontier of dynamics has been in mathematics since 1960 applications and experiments uh, since 1973 that he's been working in dynamics he's a a master of chaos theory he's been a consultant on chaos theory and its applications in many many fields medical ecological mathematical economics psychotherapy physiology lots of different things he's the uh, current active editor for Technical Journal's uh, World Future and the International Journal of Bifurcations and Chaos. Ralph Abraham is the real deal, all right? And uh, sometimes I get a bad rap for uh, being a proponent of people who supposedly aren't the real deal. Well, Ralph is, and uh, you'll get a load of that tonight. Another guy who's the real deal is uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. And Rupert is uh, a biologist. He's written more than 75, probably more than 100 papers by now. He's written 10 books. He was a research fellow uh, at the Royal Society. He studied natural sciences at Cambridge University. Um, took a honors degree there. Went to Clare College, I think. Then he also went back to uh, he went to Harvard at one time, where he studied philosophy. I know that. Uh, went back to Cambridge, took a Ph.D. in biochemistry. Uh, was a fellow at Clare College at at Cambridge University. Also, um, he's done research uh, at Cambridge for many many years, working on development of plants and the aging of cells. He was director of studies at biochem at uh, Clare College, and. Uh, I don't know what else has Rupert done. I don't know. He's done botany work. He's an incredible biologist. He has an incredibly intuitive knowledge of life. And one of the things that uh, I was originally introduced to Rupert because of was a book that he wrote in 1972 that was called The New Science of Life. And he'll talk about that a little bit tonight uh, in this presentation of Metamorphosis. Uh, Rupert is the real deal as well, and you can check out him and his work at uh, www.sheldrake s-h-e-l-d-r-a-k-e dot o-r-g at sheldrake.org so tonight Ralph, Terrence and Rupert and Terrence well you know simply to me one of the most creative and imaginative thinkers of the 20th century, a person I believe will eventually be remembered uh, as the Galileo of consciousness. He was someone who was very, very important to me and still is. It was a huge influence on my own individual ideas, my worldview, my cosmology, my spirituality, all of these things.
and he was just an amazing soul. And um, if you've heard this program before, you probably already know the name Terrence McKenna. For others, listen in. Uh, it will be a real treat for you, and you'll hear more from him over time as I continue with this program, much to the delight of many of you and, uh, and to the dislike of some others, I guess. But that's the way life is. You know, you can't please everybody all the time. So we're going to take a quick break here and play a little bit of music, and we're going to come back with Metamorphosis, Trialogues at the Edge of the West, Terrence McKenna, Dr. Ralph Abraham, and Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Stick around. It's going to be really great. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, and this is The Tragically Hip. This is for you, Terrence. Leave.
All right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And it's about uh, 26 minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock on the 4th of April, 2005. And I think we're going to get right into this now. Um, if you missed uh, the intro at the top of the hour here, we're going to present a program that's called Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. It's an hour of compressed... Uh, audio it's actually a video as well that they made out of it but this is actually the the, uh, the audio track from the video uh, and it was uh, compressed down from about eight uh, eight hours or so of the first uh, public trialogue event that went down uh, at the Esalen Institute some people here may be familiar with Esalen out in California up on the cliffs of Big Sur an amazing place where some really cool things have happened over the years. So, at any rate, uh, this is from 1989, believe it or not, uh, from Esalen, Dr. Ralph Abraham, Terrence McKenna, and Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. And it is uh, as relevant and as valid as it's ever been, what you're going to hear in the next, uh, for the next 75 minutes. So, stick around and enjoy it. I'm not going to waste any more time talking about it. So here we go from 1989, 16 years new, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Trialogues at the Edge of the West, Rupert, Terrence, and Ralph. Everyone's fond of saying that coastlines and forest distributions and all this stuff are fractal. Well, doesn't this imply that there is then a global fractal? There is a fractal dimension which when you feed it into your computer and wrap the data around a sphere, the continents and oceans of Earth should appear. And in principle, again to the absurd level, you should be able to then telescope in on that portion of this data that is wrapped around the sphere that corresponds to Northern California. And on your computer screen should appear Esalen hung on the cliffs of Big Sur with us sitting in a room inside discussing the matter. Rupert, Terrence, I'm Ralph. Creation, imagination, my mask is chaos. LSD experiences, I seemed to see uh, motifs and structures that gave me an interest in uh, Tibetan Buddhism 
and I went to India with the intent of studying the Tibetan language and quickly found that the whole thing was just overwhelming and that I was just, you know, a human atom in the sea of India and that the notion of uh, encompassing or understanding what this was was clearly uh, the task of a lifetime. And several times in my life I have acted out this sort of ricocheting relationship between the humanities and the sciences. At times, you know, losing myself in the study of certain schools of poetry or literature or painting. And then at other times spending years reading philosophy of science and epistemic uh, basis of physics and this sort of thing. Always trying to get a resolution on the content of my experience, my lived experience, which included the psychedelic experience, which for me from very early on was this kind of tremendous uh, mystery or conundrum which was set down in the middle of my being and it still continues like that. I keep returning to that, testing all the ideas against, uh, against the fullness of experience. The main difference between our world and the world that science tells us we're living in is that science denies the quirky, freaky, cosmic giggle, high plottedness, completely improbable, totally quirky humor that binds everything together and that makes it something other than an engine in which atoms blindly run, in, in Whitehead's phrase. Schrodinger brilliantly anticipated uh, the discovery of DNA and then Joseph Needham and L.L. White and, uh, well, Eric Yonch should be mentioned, actually, as a precursor of us all, I think. I mean, Eric Yonch was a great pioneer, a great soul, and he saw very deeply into whole systems, as did Ilya Prigozhin, the Belgian thermodynamicist. And I think uh, a lot of all of what we're doing comes out of that. What Prigozhin showed that just brought down the house was that there could be uh, perturbations of physical systems that were unpredictable and that would cause the whole system to actually move to a more ordered state than the initial state. And this perturbation to higher states of order looks suspiciously like a violation of the uh, supposedly inviolate second law of thermodynamics. So that looks, you know, like a, a doorway into a, an energetic hyperspace. Well, when uh, A New Science of Life came out in 1982 in America, it came out a year earlier in England, um, I came to California because it was published in Los Angeles. I found myself here at Esalen. I found a, an extraordinary new range of things going on I hadn't known about. And when I was in San Francisco, 
uh, a friend who I knew from Europe said to me just the day before I left um, there's somebody you must meet uh, he's called Terence McKenna I didn't know much about <laughs> Terence uh, so I went up there um, and in this large 1956 Buick we headed off into the woods in uh, Sonoma County where Terence lives and there I met both Terence and Ralph who was there for the day I found that uh, part of my interest in these other realms of reality, of course, like many people in this room, was stimulated by experience with psychedelic substances. Um, this was before I went to India. When I arrived in India, I found that India is a kind of psychedelic realm anyway. You know, it's, it's just an amazing place. So, in Terence, I found somebody who knew about that whole realm who shared with me an interest in India since it played an important part in his development and who had views about the nature of reality which complemented my own in an extraordinary way. My own theory is about memory and habit in nature. Terence, I found, had developed a theory about novelty and creativity in nature, a theory about the quality of time and the creative process uh, as it uh, is related to the ongoing flux of events. Um, and Ralph uh, had a kind of mathematical theory which was just the kind of thing that the view of nature I was trying to develop needed the idea of nature being drawn by goals or attractors in the mathematical science of dynamics there's this uh, model of, the na of reality being pulled from ahead by things called attractors um, it's a teleological animistic view of nature uh, which dressed up in the guise of mathematical models um, which I found most fascinating and so for me the meeting with Ralph and Terence was a step further towards seeing how one could begin to dream of a world in which nature was seen as alive in which the imagination permeated all reality in which animals and plants are seen as part of the um, living uh, texture, the living, the living components, the cells in, in the life of Gaia and Gaia in the life of the cosmos as a whole. In fact, a view of the world uh, as alive which recalls in some respects the old cosmologies of the ancient world where the cosmos was seen as a living organism, where they thought of the whole cosmos as having a soul, the soul of the world, the, the anima mundi. So I was uh, brought up in a field of music, but I was attracted to mathematics early. And when I was 14, I played in the State Symphony. And after that, I started in mathematics, and I became a professor at Berkeley when I was 23. I had an easy way in mathematics, and the, the way the... Uh, system works the carpet is unrolled in front of you you know you can you have a few choices but basically before you even know what's happening the carpet is unrolled and you've you're down the runnel into whatever you can do that's useful to the system in this process i i lost uh nature but there was a great gain because i love it out there i love to be off the planet I always did, and uh, to this day I spend very little time on planet Earth. So it went on in this way, and by 1967 I was a professor at Princeton. I had written three books on mathematics that you need a microscope to read. 
<laughs> and I had been studying for a long while chaos, but we didn't call it chaos then, and we didn't see in it any role in the natural world or in social transformation or in the evolution of consciousness because we didn't think about anything out there. So one day after my third book was done and I was exhausted and I looked up and all the students were out in the courtyard demonstrating about the Vietnam War and to open the university to women students and, and so on. I said, what exactly is, is going on? Here they said, take this. <laughs> and so, like many people in that year or around that time, Nick, in 1967, my uh, career had a bifurcation. So I went off the track with uh, psychedelics, with meditation, but especially with searching, with trying everything. And uh, eventually, I was living in a cave in the Himalayas. And when I returned to California, I was standing on a street corner in Santa Cruz in white pajamas and a car stopped an old friend from a previous lifetime said there's somebody you have to meet get in the car I had nothing to do it sounded okay and in that time I believed that everything goes perfectly you just go along with the flow as they said I didn't know it would be a two-hour drive so I got in the car there's the two-hour drive to Berkeley and I was literally dumped out of the car on uh, Terence's front step I never heard of Terence at that time, 1972. Mm -hmm. And I went in, and what happened then, I would still say, although we've had many wonderful talks and exciting, thrilling, and nutritious times in the meanwhile, that that was quite a miraculous chat. Many subjects came up. How to grow mushrooms, outer space, I don't know, anything you could think of, all passed by in the course of an hour or two. In this way, we became friends, and this habit we had, this activity that we do, I mean, we never go for a hike or something like that. We sit in the evening and, and talk, and what happens is synergistic, uh, miraculous growth, evolutionary. And in this uh, revitalization of my work, and eventually the whole field of mathematics, my conversations with Terence, whereas I think we thought of them as just good fun, that they did have a really fundamental influence on everything I've done since. So fun, or I would say fun is insulting. I mean, thrilling uh, because of going to the edge, going beyond the edge, having company there, finding things which you can bring back and they work, and become part of everything you're doing. So it's opened up these complex uh, phenomenon characterized by chaotic irregular, that is to say not well ordered in the previous paradigm of space-time structure. For example, relationships among people, the states and change of states of society, the whole process of history, the intuitive experience subjective experience of relationship and so on. All of this, what we always wanted, to come under the, the, the view of a better understanding, suddenly is possible. But although it's possible, it's not done. But we, we can do it, so uh, we, we can try to do it. The flutter of the moth's wing can trigger the hurricane. This is not a poetic statement. 
this is the fact of the matter within this kind of description of nature. In other words, very small changes create cascades into where whole states shift and are perturbed. And this is the kind of situation that we are facing as a society and a planetary uh, species. We have the resources, we have uh, the, the knowledge, but what we seem to lack uh, is the will to implement these things, to actually step back from, uh, from the abyss. So it has to come through a change of mind. And this new mathematical stuff is telling us that uh, the intimations of mysticism, the intimation of a possibility of transcendence is all firmly grounded. We just have to now, it's almost as though mathematics is the extreme cutting edge of human understanding. How can we quickly export these new understandings that release us from a need for closure, that free us from an either-or universe. How can we quickly export these models from the realm of research mathematics into the realm of, uh, of daily life? I really see it as politics, almost at the viral level that we are trying to create new languages and new concepts and not only create them but teach them to you and we ourselves repeat them over and over again and you feed back into this and then we refine the meme and then a meme is like a gene it can be replicated and we have not seen language as the playing field of uh, the creation of the new paradigm but that's really where it is we can transform ourselves no more quickly than we transform our language and the way we transform our language is by really pushing on the envelope of the act of communication you know the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland says say what you mean and mean what you say I do I'm a biologist by background. I studied biology because I was interested in animals and plants. And when I was studying it at Cambridge, I began to have terrible doubts about what I was doing because everything that really interested me about animals and plants somehow vanished when I got into the biochemistry laboratories. I was majoring in biochemistry and I did a PhD in biochemistry there. Um, but there's a curious thing about biochemistry. You're doing biochemistry to study the molecular basis of life. Yet the very first thing you do in the laboratory is kill whatever you're studying, grind it up, extract the enzymes, and then in a test tube, study the properties of some of these molecules extracted from this killed organism. And it began to occur to me that perhaps this wasn't the best way to understand life. Um, but I didn't quite know what to do about it because everybody else thought it was definitely was the best way to study life and in fact there was no other valid way um, so 
this set me thinking, and I began to see that um, the science of biology could be reformed, uh, that this idea that living organisms are truly alive rather than being just machines, that's the official doctrine, the mechanistic theory, says living organisms are just complicated machines. Um, believe it or not, still the official doctrine of academic biology and academic medicine. Uh, these ideas went on developing. I then saw how I could bring them all together in a synthesis and into a new, new way of seeing how biology could be done. And I wrote a book while still in India called A New Science of Life. In it, the basic idea I'm suggesting is that there's a kind of inherent memory in all kinds of animals and plants. Each species has its own collective memory. So each member of the species draws on this collective memory and in turn contributes to it. The instincts of animals, for example, the behavior of cuckoos, the spinning of webs by spiders, are like a memory, a habit of the species. This inheritance takes place by the process I call morphic resonance, by a kind of invisible, intangible memory, a kind of resonance between present and past organisms of the same kind. The same theory helps explain how our own memory works by a resonance between our own past and our present states it leads to the idea that our memories aren't stored in our brains but that we're tuning into them by this process of morphic resonance. Rupert's notions revision causality. That means induct you into an entirely new way in which things happen. And this is, after all, uh, where we're all spending a lot of our time. Uh, the models that Ralph is working with show that the world is not an engine running down toward the heat death, but a tremendous kaleidoscope of unpredictable, creative, open-ended uh, activity on every level. I mean, it's really a dazzlingly kaleidoscopic vision. It's like a, it's like a, a, a Sufi herophony or something, but we're seeing it on the screens of computer simulations of this mathematical domain that is also the neural domain, that is also the social domain, that is also the eco-planetary domain. This is not air. This is not uh, mysticism. This is the real facts of how it is, how the world fits together. It fits together through the infusion of its invisible soul. If nature is evolutionary, if all of nature is evolving, what about the eternal laws of nature? which scientists have taken for granted for so many centuries, concepts going right back to Pythagoras and the ancient Greeks. Were all the laws of nature there before the Big Bang? Well, if they were there before the Big Bang, where could they possibly be? There was nowhere to be, there was no universe. So if the laws of nature were all there before the Big Bang, then they must be idea, non-physical, idea-like entities dwelling in some kind of permanent mathematical mind, uh, be that thought of as the mind of God or just the mind of a kind of uh, disembodied mathematician. Um, they, they were thought to be permanent and all there before the universe. This assumption is still held by most of our modern cosmologists. It's something that physicists have not yet begun to question seriously. 
But as you can see, it's like an idea that's had the, the carpet taken from under it. It's sort of hanging over an abyss. Um, because there's no real reason why we should assume the laws of nature are permanent in an evolving universe. If the universe is evolving, then the laws of nature could be evolving as well. And in fact, the very idea of the laws of nature may not be appropriate. It may be better to think of the habits of nature evolving. The Big Bang is like the cracking of the cosmic egg. That's its mythological co correlate. The notion of the ancient mythological idea of the cosmos beginning through the hatching or the cracking of an egg, followed by the growth of the organism that comes out. It's an embryological metaphor. Um, and we now have a, a kind of developmental model of the whole universe. It's like a developing organism. It's not like a machine at all anymore. The universe is a growing, developing organism, which is differentiating within itself, forming new forms and patterns. An evolutionary process that on Earth has given rise to all the forms of animal and plant life, all the different kinds of microbes, to ourselves and to the many and varied forms of human culture. A theory of evolutionary habits demands a theory of evolutionary creativity. How can we understand the creativity that's given rise to new ideas, to Beethoven's symphonies, to uh, theories in science, to new works of art, to new forms of culture, to instincts in birds and animals, um, to the forms of flowers and plants and leaves, to the many kinds of rocks and crystals, and to all the forms of galactic and stellar and planetary organization? What kind of creativity could underlie all those processes? One is the materialist view that says the whole thing is entirely due to blind chance, that there's nothing but a kind of darkness of blind material processes going on, and then by blind chance, new things happen. The other model for understanding creativity, I think, is provided by our own imaginations. Our imaginations are not full of fixed platonic ideas, which are always the same, like platonic minds. They're ongoing, changing, dynamical processes with a kind of creative richness that always surprises us. So the question is, if nature is alive rather than dead, if the universe, if the earth have a kind of mind or soul of their own, if living organisms are in some sense uh, mind-like, or if there's a mind-like process at work in nature, then how does this express its creativity? And so the, then the question is, could this creativity in nature be a product of the imagination of Gaia, of the Gaian mind? Could it be a product of the cosmic imagination? Could there be a kind of imagination working in nature, uh, which is similar to our own imaginations? Um, could our own imaginations be just one conscious aspect of an imagination working through the whole natural world, perhaps unconsciously as it works underneath the surface of our dreams, perhaps sometimes consciously? And could this ongoing imagination be the basis of evolutionary creativity in nature, just as it is uh, in the human realm? How would it be, or is it credible, that perhaps what the universe is, is a kind of system in which more advanced forms of order actually influence previous states of organization? 
This is what is emerging in Ralph Abraham's work with the uh, chaotic attractors. They are attractors. That means that they exert influence on less organized states and pull them toward some kind of end state. And for me, the key to unlocking what is going on with history, creativity, progressive uh, process of all sorts is to place uh, the state of completion at the end, but to see it as a kind of higher dimensional object which casts an enormous and flickering shadow over the lower dimensions of organization of which this universe is one. So that, for instance, in the human domain, when we look at history, what we see is an endless series of anticipations. The golden age is coming. The Messiah is immediately around the corner. Great change is soon to be upon us. These are intimations of change. It's almost as though the transcendental object that is the great attractor in many, many dimensions uh, throws out images of itself which filter down through these lower dimensional matrices and actually are the basis of the appetition of nature for greater expression of form, the appetition of the human soul for greater immersion in beauty, the appetition of human history for greater expression of complexity. So um, when I think about these terms, chaos, creativity, imagination, I see them, it's like a three-stroke engine of some sort. Each impels and runs the other and sets up uh, a reinforcing cycle that then stabilizes uh, organisms, processes that are caught up in this in the phenomenon of being. The phenomenon of being is this self-synergizing engine of an out of chaos through creativity into the imagination, back into chaos, out into creativity, uh, so forth and so on. And it operates on many levels simultaneously so that the planet is undergoing a destiny. Deep time, the time of geology, was only really discovered around the turn of this century. And it is cosmically uh, ennobling to, to think of the universe as a thing of great age. But I think that it's time to put in place next to the notion of deep cosmic time, the notion of chaotic, uh, sudden uh, change, cusp flux, and sudden perturbation. Because at the, what deep time has revealed as we've pushed our understanding of the career of organic life back 65 million years, 270 million years, what we see is tremendous punctuation 
built into the universe in the case of the earth in the form of asteroidal impacts this thing which happened 65 million years ago nothing larger than a chicken walked away from it on this planet so it, there's a strange paradox where taking deep time seriously the message of deep time is you may not have as much time as you thought that the universe is dynamic capable of turning sudden corners so then the imagination becomes a kind of beacon the imagination is as it were a scout sent ahead or a, a uh, something which has preceded us into history and in fact is a kind of eschatological object it is shedding uh, influence the morphogenetic field if you wish if the morphogenetic field is not subject to the inverse square law of decreased influence over distance then I as a layman don't see why Rupert we couldn't uh, locate it at the conclusion of process because you know one of the things that's always puzzled me about the Big Bang is uh, it's a singularity this is the term physicists use for it this means theory cannot predict it and yet it is necessary to make everything which follows from it happen so you just say you know there's no reason for this we have no argument for this but the rest of the theory needs it so it's a singularity and the immense improbability which modern science rests on but cares not to discuss is this the belief that the universe sprang from nothing in a single moment well if you can make that leap to believe that <laughs> it's very hard to see what you couldn't believe that is almost the limiting case of credulity I would think you know so um, <laughs> So in order to save the phenomenon, I would propose a different idea that, uh, and it, I think it is eminently reasonable, and it is that as the complexity of a system increases, so too does the likelihood of its generating a singularity or an unpredictable perturbation so the the pre-existent state of the universe I imagine to be extremely simple an unflawed nothingness in other words the least likely situation in which you would expect a singularity to emerge but now let's look at the other end of the historical continuum of the history of the universe uh, let's look at the uh, world we are living in which is full of uh, 106 elements 
tremendous gradients of energy ranging from the what's going on inside pulsars and quasars to what is going on inside viruses and cells tremendous organizational capacity at the atomic level at the molecular level at the level of molecular polymerization at the level of membranes and gels at the level of uh, cells and organelles organisms societies uh, so forth and so on in other words the universe at this moment is a tremendously complicated, integrated, multi-leveled, dynamic thing. And every passing moment, it becomes more so. This is what evolution, history, compression of time, what all these things are attempting to indicate is the increasing complexity of reality. If a singularity is necessary to explain this universe, that singularity must emerge rather near the end of the complexification process rather than its beginning. You see, we simply have to reverse our preconceptions about the flow of cause and effect, and then we get a great attractor that pulls all organization and structure toward itself over several billion years. And as uh, the objects of its attraction uh, grow closer to its proximity, they somehow interpenetrate. Uh, they set up uh, standing wave patterns of interference. New properties become emergent, and the entire thing complexifies. Well, to my mind, this is um, uh, the divine imagination. This is what Blake called it. This is the only way I can conceive of it. Time is the theater of God's becoming, but it's also from the point of view of a higher dimensional manifold, a kind of feat accompli. And this is no contradiction, or if it is, it's all right, because in these realms of higher ontology, you're always asked to avoid closure and hold the notion of a coincidencia positorum, a union of opposites. The thing is both what it is and what it is not and yet it somehow escapes contradiction and that's how uh, the open system is maintained. That's how uh, the miracle of uh, life is possible. So I sort of think of the divine imagination as uh, the, the class of all things both possible and beautiful. It's a kind of reverse Platonism. The attractor is at the bottom of a very deep pit into which all phenomena is uh, cascading. What is taught in modern universities these days is that these tracks in the snow are going nowhere. The technical term is trendlessly fluctuating. 
and we're told that history is this kind of process. It's trendlessly fluctuating. It goes here, it goes there. It's called a random walk in information theory. It means you just wander around. And Well, it's very interesting. Now we begin to see through the marvel of... Uh, of the new mathematics that random walks are not random at all that a sufficiently long random walk becomes a fractal structure of extraordinary depth and beauty so you see really what has to happen is for us to see chaos not as something that degrades information and is somehow the enemy of order but rather chaos is the birthplace of order chaos is not the problem chaos is uh, the answer all right hi uh, this is Mike you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM Min Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's listener-sponsored community radio, KOPN, your imagination station. And you're listening to it right here. All right, uh, we're about halfway through this presentation of Metamorphosis, Trialogues at the Edge of the West. This is a three-way conversation between Terrence McKenna, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, and Dr. Ralph Abraham, if you're just tuning in. And uh, we've got about another 35 minutes or so of this to go, and then got something else special planned at the uh, at the bottom of the hour or so thereabouts. So anyway, stick around, and uh, this gets better and better. And I hope you're enjoying it. All right, this is uh, Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And here we go one more time. Terrence McKenna, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. And Ralph Abraham, Trialogues at the Edge of the West. This is called Metamorphosis. Enjoy the rest of this. I think a, a, a factor which changes everything is the discovery of dark matter. The fact that 90 to 95, 99% of the matter in the universe is utterly unknown to us. Uh, this recent discovery effectively tells us that the whole cosmos and every material thing in it has a kind of unconscious, a material unconscious, an unknown dark realm which cut conditions everything that happens, the shapes of the galaxies, their interactions. Is Gaia, as it were, awake on the side that's in the sunlight and in the side that's in the darkness as it rotates, dreaming? At night are the plants, the animals, the, the whole ecosystems, the oceans, in some sense, in the dream state when dreams and spontaneous images of what might be possible uh, come to them. So, is there a kind of Gaian dreaming, and does it happen on the night side of the planet? What would the Gaian mind feel like? What, what form would a Gaian dream take, or what form would a Gaian psychedelic experience take? The psychedelic experience, it's preposterous to attempt to analyze it in terms of human motivation at its intense levels. It seems rather to be an ontological reality of its own that the human being has simply privi been privileged to briefly observe 
but it says no more your psychedelic ex your deep psychedelic experiences say no more about your personality than that the continent of Africa is making a statement about your personality they are in fact independent uh, objects uh, to my mind the divine imagination or the imagination is this the source of all creativity in our dreams in our psychedelic experiences in the jungles in the currents of the ocean in the organization of protozoan and microbial life wherever there is large-scale integration rather than simply raw physics but integration of laws of physics integration of properties of membranes and electrophoresis and this sort of thing it is the creative principle so do you think then that in psychedelic experiences you're actually tapping into tuning into or experiencing something of the Gaian or the cosmic imagination absolutely and I think that it, that psychedelic experiences and dreams are only different in degree that they are chemical cousins somehow and this is why I could see human history as a guy in dream because I think every night when you descend into dream you are potentially open to receiving Gaian corrective tuning of your life state you would the the whole thing is an enzyme driven process we are like an organ of Gaia we are the uh, organ which binds and releases energy for reason I mean a liver cell doesn't need to understand why it binds and releases enzymes of the liver we bind and release energy for reasons perhaps never to be clear to us but which place us firmly within the context of uh, of the guy in mind we have been chosen out and this is not something to have great hubris about I mean indolacetic acid has been chosen out in plant metabolism to play certain roles we have a role but our role seems to be a major one we are like a triggering system out of the general background of evolutionary processes mediated by incoming radiation to the surface of the earth and then natural selection suddenly we come with an epigenetic capability we write books tell stories dance sing carve paint these are not genetic processes these are epigenetic processes and they bind information and express the guy in mind uh, very well as an example of how willing I am to introduce or to entertain this idea concretely I've been talking to a lot of people about ecological crisis and the fate of the world and this sort of thing well imagine in hindsight the wisdom that we would impute to Gaia if we were to suddenly realize that what is happening on this planet is that nature knows that the sun is going to explode and what we are is a kind of response to the anticipation of a wounding that 50,000 5 million years ago the geoheliocentric relationships began to vibrate 
out of tune. And um, as a consequence of this, a species was called forth that could organize an escape. And we are it. In other words, we are in a divine play. In line with this, and what made me even entertain these ideas, is I had a very bizarre experience recently. I was in Hawaii, and uh, in our botanical garden, there is a very large dead tree, and one limb of this tree sticks far out over the, over the land. And uh, Banisteriopsis kapi, a large hallucinogenic South American vine, is planted at the, at the bottom of this tree. And uh, it just has swarmed up this tree and covered it with greenery. But it wouldn't go out onto this one limb that stuck out. And I, it bothered my sense of symmetry that this vine would not completely cover this tree. And I even thought about trying to climb up into the tree and thread it out onto this limb to get it to do what I wanted. So I was sitting looking at this tree and this situation and actually thinking about it and suddenly the limb fell <laughs> it broke off and then I thought and I thought the vine sensed that it was in unstable it would not invade this domain that it sensed was structurally unstable well then I said to myself but how could it what is the mechanism of this sensing of instability? And a, a friend of mine said, well, perhaps the wind impacts on weakened wood differently than on unrotted wood, and perhaps rhythms in the tree tell it to stay away from it. And then I realized if one plant has that kind of sensitivity to the entering into a domain of danger, what must the ecosystem of this planet be doing in reaction to what we are doing to the planet? So it, I, I see uh, the reason this relates to the imagination is because I see uh, ourselves in communication with the imagination. It is sending images back into the past to try and direct us away from areas of instability. It really is the Gaian mind is a real mind. Its messages are real messages. And our task through discipline, psychedelics, attention to detail, whatever we have going, is to try and extract this message and eliminate ourselves from the message so that we then can see the face of the other. And this is the field of chaos. A certain setting of the parameter, form will emerge out of the field of chaos. And where this happens uh, reliably, we've explored the ocean all over and we found a few favorite regions. And they're called the Apache Rift, the Calico Mountain, and the Scroll Reef. So the submarine is dragging along at a thousand iterations depth in the ocean of chaos comes across these regular patterns. This is the first wing of the uh, Apache Valley. This is Apache Valley. 
This video was made out of these simplest possible dynamical systems called the logistic equation. And it just produces a series that is very similar to a dripping faucet. So you could just as well imagine that we have 16,000 dripping faucets in an array of 128 by 128. And the time between drops is represented as a color on the screen. Now, do you think that if you had 16,000 dripping faucets, you could get out of them a pattern like Calico Mountain? It relates to waterfalls, for example, when the spray comes off the waterfall. And here's another example of a chaotic system. Could you write some equations and obtain a computer program that simulated the spray from a waterfall? I doubt it. And from this totally chaotic data, viewed in this particular way, which is called chaoscopy, you get these points in the planes that if the data was really random, the dots would be all over the plane. Instead, they lie on a curve, a smooth curve. And that is called the chaotic attractor. Well, it happens. I mean, it's, there's a lot of theory behind this, enough to suggest that it's not some kind of artifact. No matter what kind of artifact it is, it's an interesting artifact. And I guess I'd like to call this a mathematical law. It has to do with the emergence of form from a field of chaos. We don't know what else to call it. It's not a mathematical law that was known to Pythagoras. And I don't know if it was always there since the beginning of time, long before the Big Bang, or if it just emerged into the evolving field of the guy in mind through the fact that computers make it visible. I mean, I don't know, but the theory can tell you certain transformations you'll expect and others not. For example, Terence had pointed to the punctual aspect of evolution, that many transformations are saltatory, they're catastrophic, they are abrupt. As, for example, in the emergence of form, as, for example, in the Neolithic revolution, as, for example, in the crystallization of the planets. As the temperature drops in the developing universe, according to standard models, more and more form comes into being. First you get uh, atoms, then stars and galaxies condensed, then you get solar systems, and through the cooling of matter you can get planets. The planets are the cooled remnants of exploding stars. The elements in our us and in our planets are stardust formed from supernovae. One way of looking at this is to see the expansion and cooling process and indeed the flow of events as being thinking of it in terms of the flux of energy and one of the great unifying concepts of 19th century physics is a unified conception of energy 
Now, it's not entirely clear what energy is. Energy, in some sense, is the principle of change. The more there is, the more change that can be brought about. It's, in a, in a sense, a causative principle. Um, and it's a causative principle which exists in a process. In this process, the energetic flux of the universe underlies time, change, becoming, and uh, the, the flux process itself seems to have an inherent indeterminism to it. This flux process, the universal flux, is organized into forms by fields. Matter is now thought of as energy bound within fields, the quantum matter fields and the fields of molecules and so on. And I think there are many of these organizing fields, the morphic fields. And nature is the uh, theater of these habitual fields organizing the indeterminate flux of energy. The fields themselves, by having this energy within them, have this indeterminate quality too. So even organized systems of a high level of complexity still have this probabilistic quality. The fields that organize this energy to give rise to material and physical forms um, are themselves probabilistic. Chaos is never eliminated. There's always this indeterminism or spontaneity at all levels of organization. So there's a formative principle, which is the fields, and there's an energetic principle, um, which I think has the chaos inherent in it. It's a kind of change, which left as pure change would be chaos. One way of thinking of these is in terms of the Indian notion of, sh sh of Shakti as the energy indeterminate principle, and Shiva as the formative principle, working together in a kind of tantric union to give the world that we know. All creation begins in chaos, progresses in chaos, and ends in chaos. And in uh, Hesiod, this word chaos appears in a piece called Theogony, which is a theogony, that is to say, more or less a creation tale, but the stories of the creation of the gods and goddesses one by one. Well, they're not gods and goddesses, really. They're abstract principles, the three main ones are chaos, Gaia, and Eros. And they're the most abstract, earliest proto-concepts of sky, earth, and the creative tension in between. Now, the meaning of chaos, the first time the word appeared in literature, has got nothing whatsoever, apparently, superficially, to do with what we mean by chaos in the English language and in ordinary life. It meant only to Hesiod, according to the lexicon, the gaping void left uh, the gaping void, uh, sort of the gaping void between heaven and earth, out of which the creation came. So creation out of chaos, yes. But the chaos did not mean disorder or anything negative. It only meant this gaping void. Well, after understanding that, you look up, you, th you think of these different interpretations, sky, God concept, uh, the gap and the opening and so on. When you look at the sky, the most obvious chief characteristic feature of the sky is the Milky Way. And it does appear to, as a kind of a gap between this and that. The royal road of the gods traveling between the underworld and the overworld. Understanding that, you can then connect the word with an earlier word concept or god or goddess meaning the same thing as what you visually see represented in the Milky Way itself and that is in one of its uh, most popular representations 
Tiamat, the goddess of chaos, from Enuma Elish, the uh, creation poem, the greatest epic poem of Babylonian literature, discovered in the library of Ashurbanipal at Nineveh. Recent discovery. There was this story of the origin of the gods and the creation of the world by Tiamat and Apsu, the god and goddess of chaos who lived in the water, one more sweet water and the other salt water. And they created then the whole pantheon and the whole world and so on. But eventually along came Marduk. Uh, Marduk was a younger generation of gods in the next generation. And there was a conflict between the older and the younger gods over how the world ought to be run. And apparently this conflict was taking place in the form of a social transformation, a transformation represented in the mythological by the demotion of Apsu and Tiamat from the pantheon of Babylon, the city Babylon, and the replacement by Marduk eventually became the god, Mr. Big of Babylon, around 2000 BC, coinciding with the sweep of patriarchy over that city, propelled on a new type of war chariot with spoked wheels instead of solid wheels. Am I digressing too much? No, you've reached the wheel. <laughs> well, I've reached the spoke wheel, and its association with, uh, is this accidental? I don't know, with the patriarchy, and the fact that the wheel itself, as a mathematical model, is the paradigm of order, a divine mathematical form, according to Plato, as the planets were supposed to uh, move before uh, Kepler, who introduced the ellipse, fantastic transformation, uh, punctual catastrophe in the history of consciousness. In short, according to this epic, Enuma Elish, Tiamat was killed in the most violent way, ripped to pieces, creating the world, creating a new order by our hero of Babylon, Mr. Marduk, also Bell, Bao, and so on. His New Year's celebration was um, honored at the New Year time all over old Europe, including at Stonehenge. At the New Year's festival, this epic poem was read. So annually was the reminder that chaos is bad, chaos has been killed, chaos has been replaced by order, an order associated with perfect periodic, uh, the wheel, the cycle, the perfect roundness, and, and so on. Whereas in Minoan Crete, you find, according to the evidence of the excavators and all who have examined the artworks that remain, a long-lasting fluorescence of partnership culture with uh, no domination by a male god. It's established that there's the diffusion from Crete to Greece. And the last remainder of Cretan culture, which is a very interesting one, it must have been sort of the, the last vestige of the Garden of Eden. We're talking about a tremendous happiness and uh, uh, fluorescence of beauty in all aspects of, of life. The importance of uh, the chaos revolution now is that chaos has recovered from being 
demoted from being banished to the unconscious in uh, around 2000 BC or so, from then up to now four or maybe five thousand years of the repression of chaos. I mean, chaos is to this day in our culture a bad word. We have to watch out for chaos. It ruins your love life. It has to be replaced by order. Scientists most especially hate it and so on. The fact that scientists of all people in the <coughs> temple of science that Tiamat has to be accepted as a friend and replaced upon her throne. This is big news. I believe that the importance of the psychedelics is primary here and that it doesn't simply have to do with the fact that they synergize cognition, which they do do. And, and the synthetics as well as the natural ones. But it's deeper than that. It's that we have a secret history, knowledge of which has been lost to us and only is now recoverable in the light of the kind of mindset that becomes possible to us if we accept the new paradigm. And what this secret history is and has to do with and how it relates to the Gaian mind and the world soul is that we, we are uh, the victims of a, an a instance of traumatic abuse in childhood as a species because a symbiotic relationship with the world girdling intelligence of the planet which was mediated through plants, through shamanism. I mean, it wasn't an abstraction, it was an experience, was uh, eventually broken up and disrupted by uh, progressive climatic uh, drying of uh, the Eurasian and African landmass. And so this is literally the fall into history, the expulsion from Eden, all these primary myths of a golden age found and lost have to do with the fact that once we lived in dynamic balance with nature, not as animals do, but as human beings only could, but in a way that we have now lost. Well, how have we lost it and what have we lost? How we have lost it is uh, the, the way in which these psychoactive compounds that were being brought into the diet were acting is they were psycholytic upon the formation of the ego. They literally suppressed the formulation of the, e the formation of the ego and promoted instead collectivist, tribal, partnership values which were operating intuitionally in a resonance relationship with the, the feminine vegetable matrix of the planet. In other words, nothing was verbalized, everything was felt, everything was intuited. And regularly at the new and full moon, these small groups of hunter-gatherers, later pastoralists, gathered and uh, took these hallucinogenic plants and dissolved boundaries and engaged in group sex 
and annealed, a new word that we've brought in here, annealed the irregularities that had cropped up in people's personal self-imaging in the interval since the last session. And this kept everything uh, grounded on the plane of that which is important, i.e. the values of the group, of the species, of dynamic balance with the ecosystem, and so forth and so on. Well, when this was disrupted and the supplies of these plants were diminished and new religious forms arose and the time between the great festivals grew longer and longer, uh, the ego begins to take hold first as a kind of cancerous aberration, but then quickly becoming a new style of behavior, which quickly then eliminates all other styles of behavior by suppressing access to the chaos. And this is the point I want to make, that there is between the ego and, and full understanding of reality a barrier, a problem, the fear of the ego to surrender to the fact of chaos. Chaos is what we have lost touch with. This is why it has been given a bad name, because it is feared by the dominant archetype of our world, which is the ego, which clenches, because its existence is uh, defined in terms of control and the the furious modeling process and this will now sound like a knock on modeling the furious modeling process that the ego endlessly carries out is an effort to fight the absence of closure the ego wants closure it wants a complete explanation the beginning of wisdom i believe is the ability to accept an inherent messiness in your explanation of what's going on. Because nowhere is it writ that human minds should be able to give a full accounting of creation in all dimensions and on all levels. You know, Wittgenstein had this idea that philosophy should be what he called true enough. And, and I think that's a great idea. Let's just make it true enough because that's as true as it can uh, be gotten. Well, so uh, the imagination is chaos. New forms are fetched out of this chaos. For me, the creative act is the letting down of the net of human imagination into the ocean of chaos on which we are suspended and the attempt to bring out of it ideas to bring out of it uh, you know sometimes and this is part this is my model for the psychedelic experience that it is the night sea journey that it is the lone fisherman on a tropical sea with his nets and you let these nets down and uh, sometimes something tears through them that leaves them in shreds and you just row for shore and put your head under your bed and pray 
And at other times, what slips through are the, the minutiae, the minnows of this ichthyological metaphor of idea chasing. And, but sometimes, you know, you actually can bring home something that is food, that is food for the human community that we can sustain ourselves on and go forward. So we haven't talked that much about art and aesthetics, but I think in the human world, uh, the, the, uh, the appetition is for beauty to my mind, and this is another place where the Platonism shines radiantly through, you know, because Plato held that the good was the true and that both were the beautiful. And this is a very quaint idea from the point of view of modern philosophy, but I think, uh, you know, it's in the bones when you actually connect yourself up uh, to the planet. That's why chaos is capable of being the tremendous repository of uh, ordered beauty that it is, because there, there is no chaos in the old definition, that, which is to say that which by any definition or any test is found to be disordered. That is just a kind of, uh, of uh, a, a hell notion, a kind of hypostatization of an ultimate state of disorder. But nowhere in, in the world that is deployed through space and time do you encounter that. Instead, what you encounter is embedded order upon embedded order, this fractal, uh, this fractal thing. And then finally, uh, for me, the imagination is the goal of history. I see culture as an effort to uh, literally realize our collective dreams. And, you know, it's on a very crude level when it's you make your mask and I make my mask and then we dance around together. And it's even at a very crude level when it's you design your shopping mall and I'll design my World Trade Center and we'll put them on the same piece of real estate. But we're coming now into, through media, I believe, through virtual reality and human-machine integration and this kind of thing, into a, a situation where the imagination is going to be something that we uh, can share, that the path of mind through its own meanderings will become something that can be recorded and played back. We will have the possibility of living in our own past or, uh, you know, creating and trading realities as art, and art as life lived in the imagination is the great archetype which rears itself up at the end of history, life in the imagination. The imagination is this auric field which surrounds the transcendental object at greater and greater depth as you approach the transcendental object. And as we now close distance with it, all, uh, all of uh, our, our cultural expression, 
all of our self-awareness is taking on this curiously designed quality. I mean, you must have noticed this, that the world is very heavily designed in a way that it never was before. Uh, morphogenetic fields of great size and scope, which our international schools of architecture and design touch whole continents, entire cities are given certain uh, ambiances. This is the summoning of the imagination into the human scale. It's like a god that we wish to call down and draw to earth. I mean, this is why William Blake called it the divine imagination, because it is the four-gated city. It is the flying saucer. We are on a journey to meet uh, this great attractor, and as we close distance with it, it is more and more a multifaceted mirror of our images of beauty. So it's like an ascending learning curve that becomes so asymptotic. And at that point, you're face to face with uh, a mystery, a living mystery that is within each and all of us. It's the imagination that argues for the divine spark in human beings. It's absolutely confounding if you try to uh, get biology to produce it for you as a necessary quantity. It isn't that. It's a, an emanation from above. It is literally a, uh, a descent of the world soul into all of us. We then become the atoms of the world soul and our channel to it is by closing our eyes and obliterating our immediate personalized space-time locus and falling into the imagination which is running like a river through all of us uh, endlessly driven by the you know, the hydraulic momentum of the cataracts of chaos which usher into the creativity of the imagination. I mean, these river metaphors are, are just endlessly applicable to this. The flowing of forces over landscapes, the pressure of chaos on the imagination to create creativity, and it's looping back into the same. I mean, these, uh, these things are the icons for the world that uh, wants to be. But the key is surrender and dissolution of boundaries, dissolution of the ego, and a trust in uh, the love of the goddess which transcends rational understanding, there will come a moment which will be an absolute leap into space, and we will simply have to have the faith that there is something waiting there, because the dominator style has uh, left us no choice.
All right, uh, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And we just finished up there with a presentation that was called Metamorphosis. Terrence McKenna, Dr. Ralph Abraham, and Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, Trilogues at the Edge of the West from 1989, Esalen, on the cliffs of Big Sur in California. Wonderful stuff, and I hope you all appreciated it. On this, the five-year and one-day anniversary of the death of Terrence, and uh, tonight this program is in tribute to him if you missed the earlier part of the program, but we've got another hour and 15 or so to go, and we're going to finish it off with uh, an interesting piece and an interesting story, and I'm going to tell you the story, all right? And this is uh, sort of my story of how I got involved with Terrence to begin with, so, so here's the deal. Years ago, back in the uh, early 90s and uh, up through the late 90s, there was uh, an Internet news group or bulletin board, uh, sort of like uh, very similar to the way the Yahoo groups uh, work these days. But this was sort of an earlier incarnation of that, and it was primarily email-based. At any rate, uh, it was called the Novelty Group, and uh, the Novelty Group was a was a bunch of people that were uh, sort of all interested in the ideas and uh, um, theories and writings, rantings and ravings of Terence, and uh, to a certain extent his brother Dennis, uh, who's been on this program. If you've listened to it uh, for any. Uh, serious length of time. At any rate, um, the Novelty Group was uh, a really interesting, diverse bunch of people who were all just discussing uh, lots of different ideas that Terence had brought up in his many books uh, that he had written. So at any rate, uh, in and Terence was involved with this group as well. He would correspond with all of us, and a lot of us developed relationships with him, and I won't go into that too deeply. So at any rate, uh, in 1998, uh, uh, Terrence found out that he had a brain tumor, a real, real rare type of tumor, actually. And uh, it was a very uh, bad diagnosis. They basically just told him you got six months to live and, uh, you know, take care of business, go to Paris if you've always wanted to go to Paris or whatever, and, uh, you know, get your life in order because you ain't going to be around too much longer. And everyone was sort of stunned by this whole thing, including Terrence himself. And uh, uh, it was a really strange and interesting time because uh, to a lot of us uh, at the time, uh, he really was sort of this guiding light and uh, really sort of a, uh, a person who helped a lot of us set our compasses in our own personal lives back then. Uh, in particular, I, I guess I can talk about me specifically, but uh, uh, I certainly am... Uh, among others and uh, at any rate the group that was uh, corresponding all the time with Terrence and regarding Terrence was this organization that was called the Novelty Group and uh, what we had decided to do or what we decided to do was try to put together this uh, a compilation try to put together some music uh, as a benefit and make a CD and then sell the CD and use the proceeds from the CD to benefit 
uh, Terrence to help pay for his medical bills and to benefit his estate and his family uh, if he were to die. And so that was the plan. And there were lots of people that were involved in this project that were all members of the group. And it was all done internally. Uh, the production was all done uh, by one gentleman. His name was Ron. And uh, anyway, lots of uh, contributions from lots of different folks that were on the group at the time. And I'm going to play that entire, uh, that entire compilation here in just a few minutes. And it's about an hour long, a little bit longer than that. So I'll put that on in about, in about five minutes. But I want to tell you the rest of the story of why uh, it's sort of important to me, at least today. Uh, so at any rate, uh, the project went forward, and it was moving along. And uh, had not actually sort of come to fruition yet. It wasn't fully produced and out, but much of the production had been done and uh, much of uh, uh, the preliminary work had been done. And at any rate, uh, on April 3rd of 2000, actually April 2nd, I guess it was, it was at night, and, and um, I had a dream. And I had the strangest dream, and uh, it's one of, the, one of these dreams that has stuck with me uh, more so than... Uh, than most, and certainly is still to this day one of the most vivid dreams that I've ever had in my whole life. And what happened was this: in my dream, I was living in uh, in Denver at the time, and in my dream, I was in the living room of my house, and with me were a whole bunch of different people from the novelty group. Even though most of these people I had never met in the physical or in the meat world, so to speak. Uh, they were all there, and we were all in my living room together, and it was sort of a party-like atmosphere. We were having a great time, some drinking going on, and a few bombers being twisted, if I remember correctly. And uh, Anyway, we were all enjoying ourselves, and uh, there was a whole stack of orders for the CD that were stacked up on the counter. And we were all excited because the CD was selling well, and we were raising lots of money to help Terrence. And... As I say, everyone was just ecstatic. We were having a great time. Probably 10 or 12 people, girls and guys alike, just enjoying each other's company and having a great time. Well, out of nowhere, in the middle of this dream, in through the window flies this crow. And the crow lands on my arm and starts to speak to me in some crow language that I understood, but I can't speak to you now. And this went on for a while, I guess, in the dream. I can't tell you what time is like, you know. But at any rate, the crow stopped and turned around and flew out the window. And uh, I went back to the party. Well, I woke up um, that following morning, which was April 3rd, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, what a dream that was. It was incredible, and it was very vivid in my head. And I got up to walk my dog like I normally did every morning, and it was about 6 o'clock in the morning on April 3rd, and it was cool out in a brisk morning in Denver, and it was really quiet. It was about 5.30 or 6 in the morning, and we were walking around the block. We took the same route every day because my dog was old and he couldn't walk very far, so we would just go right around the block one time. And uh, His name was Elwood, but anyway, Elwood just stopped about halfway around the block and sat down on the sidewalk and looked straight up. And had he not done that, I certainly would not have looked up. 
I was sort of bundled up with my chin down trying to stay warm and anyway I looked up and the only thing that I saw in the tree was a big black crow a raven sitting there staring down at me and my dog and I couldn't believe it after the dream that I had just had and it was in my head and uh, the crow caught at me and then flew away and later that afternoon when I got my email I realized uh, uh, that Terrence had died that night and um, it was quite a thing man and uh, this is the piece of music here that uh, we eventually did um, finish and I hope you all enjoy it it's called Journey Through the Spheres this is Mike you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN and this is for Terrence I'd like you all to welcome uh, Timothy Leary Terrence McKenna means a great deal to me. Uh, I would say he's one of the five or six most important people on the planet. I can't even think of any others. Uh, <laughs> short-term memory loss, but... <laughs> By the way, the role that Terrence is playing right now is one that takes not only vision, but it also takes courage. I'm a child of the 60s, born in 1946, went to Berkeley as a freshman in 1965, uh, did the India circuit, did the LSD circuit, went to South America. I've written a number of books about uh, shamanism and hallucinogens and uh, psychoactive plants. And I share an idea, which is that the world is moving at an ever greater acceleration towards some kind of complete redefining of all aspects of reality.
reality is not only not as you supposed it to be, but it's not like anybody supposed it to be. Here we are, once again, gathered to contemplate uh, the forward rush toward the unspeakable, the historical ascent from the unknowable, and this very delicate moment of equilibrium, which is called the here and now. How are we doing? How are we doing in the here and now? What we all share, I think, is this belief that spirit is in ascent, that spirit is manifesting and moving toward completion. They think you have to have a philosophical and theological disputation going if you talk about spirit. 
let's just define it here for practical purposes as consciousness. The feeling of being conscious is the feeling of the indwelling of spirit. naked, singing in the rainforest, stoned and exalted, one with the souls of the ancestors, one with the Gaian spirit of the planet.
This is KOPN 89.5 FM. not, as Milton said, the God who hung the stars like lamps in heaven, but it's the God of the oceans and the jungles and the ice caps and the rivers and the glaciers and the great schools of fish and the deserts. And it's the goddess of the earth. It's the mind of organic life on this planet.
the great news that all shamanism can attest to and is built on is the news that there is a sentient minded caring entity that surrounds and holds the planet in its hands in its heart Call it Gaia, call it God, call it the spirit of nature. It doesn't matter what you call it. It transcends the rational apprehension of higher primates. our destiny to become the gardener caretakers of a revivified earth or is the earth like a placenta because we're on our way to some grander higher domain of being A shaman is somebody who has seen the end. And if you've seen the end, then you come back and take your place in the play with an entirely different attitude.
now deeply embedded in the pattern. We can see enough of what's ahead of us to begin to actually feel the texture of the end of human history. It's no longer an abstraction. Joseph. Chief Joseph. Grandfather of this land. Your ghost is hanging round. Reaching out its hand. Joseph. Chief Joseph. Should I don my war feathers Where the sun now stands On this golden land I will fight no more Forever Chief Joseph Won't you help me understand Our buildings pierce the sky And our fences split the land Joseph Chief Joseph Should I don my war feathers Where the sun now stands On this golden land I will fight no more Forever. The sky is brown and the rain is yellow. Their children go to school, but their eyes are hollow. The great and mighty chiefs can't even build a fire. Joseph, won't you tell us what to do? Where the sun now stands on this golden land. The word of mighty warrior Christian knew one not to fight. To save the little children from the pony soldiers fight. Can I live with the ones that make the rules? When they damn the snake a river, down the fish die in And did you lose a lot of braves when you cross the snake a river? Some folks are takers and some folks are givers. Yet you know the great spirit is a coming to the land. You know the earth mother gonna win in the end. The eagles in the sky and the ravens calling. The earth is gonna laugh when the dance falling. The goons in the log and the bees in the corn. Soon Chief Joseph is coming back home. Where the sun now stands on this golden land, I will fight no more 
to all this spiritual materialism. It is, uh, and I blush to even say the word, it is love. Obviously, it is a tremendous state of lovelessness that makes people behave so foolishly, so unconsciously. straight people who own the world with their long-term and short-term projection. When you propagate all these trends, it seems very clear that business as usual is no longer an option. Oregon has a reputation, green estate in all the nation, but photos from a distant station caused a major confrontation in Oregon, home of the old ones, Big Bird and Ponderosa Pine. View from space is quite amazing. God's idea of the Amazon basin. What about the massive raping of these woods by corporations? Oregon, home of the old one. Home of the wise and ancient trees. What you gonna do with the money hungry devil? What you gonna do with a greedy businessman? Robin Hood, where are you when we need you? Mother Nature's looking for a few good men. Nine-tenths of the old-growth forest fell like soldiers there before us. Chainsaws from some deadly infantry ground out pulp. Printed currency, organ, money ain't worth it. Don't let them cut the old ones down. Tree farms don't replace the forest. Heaven help us to restore it. Clear cuts in those secret places. Drive God's critters from their places. Organ, learn from the red man. Wise and ancient tree. What you gonna do with the money hungry devil? What you gonna do with the greedy businessman? 
We call these substances consciousness-expanding agents. Well, now, if consciousness does not play a major part in the future history of our species, then what kind of a future history are we talking about? going to become stupider, duller, more animal-like? I don't think so. Consciousness is our defining quality, and it must be nourished, encouraged, catalyzed, never more so than now, because we have a planet in peril. adventure has fled, it's all humdrum, I just know, you know, that they have forgotten the five grams of psilocybin sitting in their refrigerator.
This is what psychedelics do, whether you like them or hate them, whether you denounce them or embrace them, they dissolve boundaries. They dissolve boundaries. Some of this can be humorous, you know, can dissolve the boundary between you and your cat or you and your washing machine, for that matter, <laughs> if you're not careful. These things, which look like, I mean, it's very hard to force language into these dimensions and then bring it back. But what they look like to me is self-transforming, self-dribbling basketballs or something. I mean, they come bounding forward. When you enter into the space, there's a kind of a cheer, you know, hooray. A situation in which you see them, they see you, and a relationship between you and them is very rapidly evolving. They seem to have been waiting. here show me what you are for yourself show me what you really are well immediately the temperature drops black draperies begin to lift and there's an organ tone straight out of the Bach B minor mass that shakes the room and after about 30 seconds of it you say enough already
There are truths out there that the termite mind of man, I think, is not ready to, to handle. like you think it is, that's the one thing you can take to the bank.
know how much intelligence there is uh, in the universe, but we certainly know that something has broken out uh, on this planet in our species that is like nothing else in the order of nature. of old fashioned harps of gold and the merlins red from their oracle and when the high priestess released her miracle there was I I don't live anywhere Yet I live everywhere Beyond the sea I live up in the air I am a poet's verse I am the universe Now what am I? In many realms I'm crawling through the stars And you were made for love, that's what you are And when the sword of shining spirits lights With keys from solid stone Then you will know me darkened tower of separateness melts into the sun then you know me the spectacle though I'm not logical and I'm not practical but I'm invisible that makes it magical
then you'll know me. Kings of old fashioned harps of gold and the Merlin's red from their oracle and the high priestess released her miracle. There was I. which is inevitable. Now, which future is inevitable? Well, here's one that's a fairly safe bet. Your death. Your death is a reasonable expectation. Maybe not everybody in this room will know death. I'm willing to entertain the possibility that some may choose download rather than death. Uh, uh, but most of us will eventually face death we are headed collectively toward a death-rebirth experience. When you die, you literally, as appears, dissolve. And where you go is forward and backward into time along the tracks and trails of the genetic machinery. In other words, at the moment of death, you become your children and your parents.
What is happening here is not the death of a species or the death of a planetary ecosystem. What is happening here is the birth of a new cosmic order. All that we can see of it at this point in time is the rosy glow of its promise. Dawn is breaking over Jerusalem. The east is streaked with red. process that was served by the chipping of the first flint, the raising of the first temple, the offering of the first sacrifice, and we now are in a position to understand this, to appreciate this process, and to communicate it to other people. our great bugaboo. Because we are born into the realization 
that everything is slipping through our fingers at the very moment that it comes into existence. It's a cause for exaltation. It's a cause for despair. It's that nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Not your fortune, not your misfortune, not your lovers, your enemies, your children, ultimately not even your own life and body. Everything fades. to the future without fear, without fear. was uh, music from the spheres or journey through the spheres if I call it by its correct title at any rate uh, a wonderful piece of musical production and spoken word uh, compliments of the novelty group and uh, posthumously to the wonderful Mr. Terrence McKenna and um, if you listen to this program You'll hear more from Terrence down the road because there's plenty more where that came from. All right, uh, this has been Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Stick around for Curtis the Boogeyman. He'll be here in just a moment. And uh, uh, take care of yourselves until next week, and we'll have Richard K. Moore live from Ireland.